Um, the title tonight, I Have Loved Jacob, is the beginning five verses of the book of Malachi with a slight introduction to the book that we will accomplish tonight. But it is an incredible Old Testament book. It is the last uh, book that we know of uh, in the Old Testament in terms of its date, and it is last in order, and that's because it is last in date from everything we understand. It's written around 420 B.C., maybe even as late as 400 B.C., and this is where you get the idea of the 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. This has been called by scholars the intertestamental period for obvious reasons. It's the last book between Malachi and Matthew. And you have 400 years of what scholars have called divine silence. And that is that a prophet does not show up again in Israel until John the Baptist. And John the Baptist actually is even in the book of Malachi. There's a prophecy about him, which we'll look at in a moment. But before we do anything else, would you pray with me? Father, just thank you for everyone who's watching tonight, everyone who will watch, uh, those who will hear this right now and those who will hear it later. And there's a way to hear the word of God that you've instructed us to approach you with ears to hear what you would say to us, Lord, not just to listen, but with, to listen with a heart to receive and to apply your word. So would you help us with that tonight, Lord? We want to hear what you have to say to us. So would you bless the time? Would you give us uh, insight into your word and application and all that we need? We love you and we lay it at your feet tonight. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Now you'll notice in Malachi 1.1, it says the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, the word oracle there is a word that means it's masa in Hebrew. And it's a word that typically means a heavy message or a strong statement being made. You'll notice it's an oracle. And there are two exact um, replications of this in another uh, book close to this. Zechariah 9.1 and 12.1 read the same way. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel. You'll notice it's the recipient is Israel, so the nation of Israel, and the uh, author is Malachi. So he is the one through whom the Lord speaks. Notice it's the word of the Lord, but it's through Malachi. And I just want to point out that whenever you uh, hear about the inspiration of the Bible and you wonder, well, how is the Bible inspired? People will say it's a, it's a book written by men, so how could it be the word of God? Read the sentence again. It's the word of the Lord, that's Yahweh, to Israel through the channel of the prophet. The prophet is the vehicle, but the origin of the word is from God. And this is the way that inspiration works. And if you want to write, it, write down just a couple of parallel passages, in Acts 4.25, it says, Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, thy servant, did say, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? Acts 8, 28, 25 says, when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah, the prophet, to your fathers. So when inspiration happens, it happens by the Holy Spirit, by the Lord, through the channel of the prophet, to the recipients of that word. And in this case, it is through Malachi to the people of Israel 
around the period of around 420 to 400 B.C. And this is going to be the final word of God to Israel for 400 years until John shows up. The name Malachi has been a little bit debated because the name Malachi means messenger or my messenger or the Lord's messenger. And every prophet of God, you know, when you read the the opening lines of a prophetic book, it says the word of the Lord through this person, through Isaiah, through Jeremiah. So even though his name means messenger, some people say, oh, that's a symbolic name. I don't think it is. I think he was a real guy. And simply his name is very fitting with his calling, which happens all over the Bible. So Malachi means the Lord's messenger. And the Lord's messenger has a message for the people of God who are living at this time. And he is going to bring the word of God through what's called an oracle or a heavy, heavy message. God's final word to Israel. I want you to skip all the way. Uh, we have a theme verse for you to Malachi chapter 4. So there's only four chapters. This is what we've selected as a theme verse. But as for you who fear my name, 4-2, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. There's a hopeful word there. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. But it is for those, for those of you who fear my name. You'll, you'll notice that in verse 4, there is a warning. The last uh, sentences of the Old Testament read this way. Remember 4.4, the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. We're studying Exodus on Sunday mornings. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and do what? Smite the land with a curse. Now you have after that final line of Malachi, 400 years of prophetic silence until John the Baptist shows up. And John the Baptist shows up. And what's John's message essentially? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he is preparing the way of the Lord. And here's the prophecy about John 3.1 of Malachi. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger This is uh, in keeping also with Malachi's name. And he will clear the way before me, 3-1 of Malachi. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Now, as the Old Testament unfolds, we have a couple of prophetic words here. And we have a warning to the nation of Israel that they need to hear the word because this Elijah the prophet is going to preach the word and restore, lest I smite the land with a curse. And let me tell you that there's two major views about how this will work. One is that Jesus said, if you are willing to accept it, uh, John the Baptist is Elijah the prophet who would come. And John went preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And then he pointed to the Messiah when he was coming to the Jordan River to be baptized, right? And John said, I must decrease, he must increase. He began to point the people to the Lord. Now here's one view of how people see this. They say, John the Baptist was the Elijah to come. The nation of Israel largely rejected Jesus Christ, even though 
of course, many believed, you know, the early church was thousands of Jewish people, but the nation as a whole rejected him. And he walked out of the temple and he departed from them. And 40 years later, some people argue, the great and terrible day of the Lord came. What was that? The fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 by the legions of Rome, where Israel was demolished to the ground and the temple destroyed and not to be rebuilt, as we mentioned on Sunday, for almost 2,000 years. Some would argue that that day of the Lord, that great and terrible day of the Lord, I'll put that in quotes, was a, the day of the Lord in embryo, that is a foreshadowing of a greater last day of the Lord, and that's what I would argue. But there are some of our brethren who would say that this is the fulfillment. Elijah's the ful- uh, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Elijah the prophet. John warned the people. They largely did not repent. Jesus came. They crucified him. And within a generation, Jerusalem fell. And the great and terrible day of the Lord was realized because Israel would not repent as a whole. Now, I think my view would be that what you have is you have a foretaste of the day of the Lord there. And there's going to be the final day of the Lord in the future. But it is something for us to be considering because the Old Testament does end on this note of warning. And then if you don't turn, there's going to be judgment. And John, of course, was telling the people to turn their hearts back to the Messiah. Thus, you have this idea of the oracle back to Malachi 1.1, a heavy uh, word. The Hebrew verb means to lift up and to carry It could be the idea of what is carried or born or even the idea of a tribute. And it comes through Malachi, Malachi the messenger. When did Malachi write? Well, he wrote about 80 to 100 years after the initial return of the captives from Babylon. So he is considered a post-exilic writer. What does that mean? He wrote after the exile And after the captives came back. So let me just fill you in for those of you who may not be as familiar with this. In 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar came to the area of southern Israel and he destroyed Jerusalem and surrounding regions, including the area of Edom, which which was to the uh, east of Israel. And he devastated that area and he took a whole host of captives to Babylon. And you have the book of Daniel and other books that fill in some of these blanks. And the people of Israel were in Babylonian captivity for how how long? You remember? 70 years. Exactly as Jeremiah prophesied, it occurred. At the end of the 70 years of captivity in a foreign land, a group of captives returned to the homeland of Jerusalem. But it was only about 5% of the people, about 50,000 people came back. The books of Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah record what happened under the leadership of Nehemiah who left the the Persian ruler and came back with that burden to rebuild the walls. They rebuilt the walls in 52 days and you have the record of what occurred there. They rebuilt the temple, they rebuilt the walls and the temple was rebuilt, I think it's around 500 somewhere in there, 515 BC. And so there's a group of captives that come back. And so the post-exilic writers are writing post-exile. And there's very few of them, but one of them is our author tonight. His name is Malachi. And he follows about 80 to 100 years after Zechariah and Haggai prophesy. So that puts him in that last category of a prophetic voice speaking to the people. 
and he brings the oracle. And I want you to notice in verse 2, he says, right out of the gate, here's our title, I have loved you, says the Lord. Right out of the gate, right after the introduction, the Lord assures Israel of his love for them. I have loved you, says the Lord. Here's the message Malachi brings, and it's going to be a heavy message, but it starts off with love. I have loved you. And so if you are interested in dates, the scholars set the date of the writing about 433 to 424 B.C. And the tone of the writing will be similar to Revelation 2 and 3, where Jesus goes through and assesses each of the seven churches of the, of the book of Revelation. Here's what you're doing well. Here's what I want to correct in you. It's kind of an Old Testament version of Revelation 2 and 3. And so this is what's happening, and these are the dates. Now, in Malachi's day, you might ask, well, how do we know what the dates were? Well, in Malachi's day, there is a temple standing. Uh, the temple has been built, chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 10. Sacrifices are being made at this second temple. We see that in chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. The temple was completed, I mentioned 515, 516 B.C., this would be the second temple, so the first one had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. The Jews were under the civil rule of a government, that, or of a governor, that's uh, Malachi 1.8. Nehemiah was the last civil ruler over Jerusalem. Unlikely that it is him, but that's just an interesting connection. The sins that Malachi rebukes are the same sins that Nehemiah rebuked in his book. Let me quickly give you what was going on. The priesthood was defiled. The worship of the people of God was listless and half-hearted. Men were treating their wives with treachery and divorcing them, perhaps to marry foreign women and without biblical reason. They weren't tithing. They were leaving the Levites without full support. There was social injustice in the land. And Malachi writes to the people and warns them and says, you need to turn and repent because God is calling upon you to get back to where you need to be. And he starts with these words. I've loved you, verse 2, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Now, what you're going to see in the genre of the writing is a dispute style with a back and forth question and answer. So it will be like a statement and then uh, almost like Israel saying, I beg to differ. You say you loved us. I want to know how you've loved us. You say this. We want to know how. The people are almost in the dispute argument style. They're almost like defiant towards God. Like God will make a statement through the prophet and they'll question every single statement. That's what's happening in the letter. The people uh, doubt God's word. They doubt his fatherly love. Just uh, take a look at a few other examples. Look at verse 6, chapter 1. As a son uh, honors his father and a servant his master, then if I'm a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priest who despise my name. But you say, notice, here's the dispute style. How have we despised your name? You're presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. When you present the blind sacrifice, is it not evil? In other words, you're bringing, you're not bringing me your best. You're bringing me second leftovers, half-hearted worship. Look at 2.17, just to give an idea of the back and forth style. 
You have wearied the Lord with your words, 2.17. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or where is the God of justice? That sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Uh, look at 3, 7, and 8. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, again a question, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. And then look at verse 13, one final example. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? <laughs> it almost sounds like conversations that we've had with people before, doesn't it? Where everything we say gets questioned and turned around. How have we done that? When did we do that? Where did that happen? When did that happen? And you feel like you got to circle back on the conversation a thousand times to get your point across. But they're not doing this with any old person. They're doing this with God. When, when did that happen? When did we do that? When did we say that? And, and it starts off this way. You say you've loved us. Well, how did you love us? How have you loved us? It's a bit preposterous for the nation of Israel to ask God how he loved them. God might respond, let me count the ways. Because I chose Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees and called him out of a life of paganism and idolatry. And then there was a miracle birth to Abraham and Sarah. And then there was more miracles down through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then there were 12 tribes and they ended up in Egyptian bondage. And then I came and I did what? I rescued them with 10 mighty plagues and I opened the sea and I brought them to my holy mountain and I gave them my law and I loved them with an everlasting love. I mean, how have you loved me? But look, there are times as believers, let's make an application point here, where our lives get a little bit tumultuous. We get a little bit forgetful about what God has done for us in the past and all of a sudden we go, well, how have you really loved me? Or to put it in a modern way, we might say, what have you done for me lately? And Israel kind of takes on this persona of a modern Christian who's more of a consumer than a worshiper. Who comes into the things of God more about what God can do for them rather than them loving him because he first loved us. In Revelation 2, 4, the Lord said to the church at Ephesus, you have left your first love. Return to me. And Israel had done that very thing. They were questioning God's love for them. And this is way down throughout history now. God loved them. He had loved them with an everlasting love. In fact, we would say that God chose Israel to be his special people, a special nation to him. This is something to write down uh, this is Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. You are a holy people to the Lord your God, speaking to Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you, Deuteronomy 7, 7, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, 
the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. I loved you, the Lord said. I chose you. I called you. I have loved you. Isaiah 43, 4 says, You are precious in my sight. Since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other people in exchange for your life. Jeremiah 31.3 says, The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I've loved you with an everlasting love, and I've drawn you with loving kindness. Some of you may be here tonight, and maybe you're questioning, does God really love me? And maybe that's because you've been in a hard stretch. Sometimes we judge God's love by our circumstances, right? If things are going well, God must really love me this week. <laughs> and if things aren't going so well, then maybe I've fallen out of favor or God doesn't love me. Or if he's allowed something into my life, does that mean his love has ceased? No, because God will even discipline the son and daughter in whom he delights, the one that he loves. Amen. But Israel was asking, I think, a very real question. And maybe, you know, you're, maybe you're on the fence tonight in terms of where you are with the Lord, and you're asking, well, how has God loved me? Maybe this is very personal for you right now. Maybe you would say, it, if I could ask the question, since Israel asked it, I'll ask it. How has God loved me? Can I point you to something? There's a cross up on the wall, and, that's, and it says in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. God so loved the world, that's all of us, that he gave his only son. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, Christ loved me and he gave himself up for me. If you want to know if God loves you, you need to revisit the cross, amen? Because the cross is the great expression of God's love. And people have put it this way. If you want to know how much God loves you, just take another look at the cross, and he loves you this much. He was willing to die for you and to call you to himself through the gospel. And so Israel has forgotten her history, and maybe you have as well. And sometimes when life gets a little tough, or maybe we feel spiritually dry, or wherever you may be tonight, sometimes we might question that. We might say, well, how has God loved me? God called you. <laughs> Do you remember back in, in, the, in the early days when you first heard the gospel? You remember when it was all brand new to you and you heard that God loved you and you heard what Jesus Christ did for you? And then do you remember when you were first born again to that living hope and everything you read in the Bible was brand new and that love story was just beginning and everything was fresh and beautiful and exciting. Well, in many ways, as humans, we can, we can get into a routine where we lose that, that early beauty of the excitement of the honeymoon, if you will. And we become almost robotic and calloused. The people of Israel were going through the rituals. They were bringing offerings into the temple. They, they were doing some of the right things, but their hearts were not in it. And it was very clear to God that they had moved away and fallen far from him. I look at the modern church today, and 
I would ask myself the question along with you, what application do you think would need to occur right now in the body of Christ as it stands right now today in the privileged situations in which we find ourselves? Because we have had so much given to us that now we expect this level. And if we don't get it, well, a lot of us are ready to exit stage left. Because I think we've maybe become more consumers than we have worshipers. And, you know, people in persecuted nations, <laughs> they, they, they say things like this, you know, my salvation is enough. And even if I'm martyred for my faith, that it's almost an expectation that they're going to be persecuted. American Christians, it's, it's a little bit different. And I will say to my brother pastors, unfortunately, we fed some of that mentality. Because if we've created this idea that we draw people because of the bells and whistles and we don't teach people about discipleship and we don't go in depth into the word of God and then we get what we get in the culture because we haven't grounded our young people in the word of God or in apologetics and they go off to the university and within two weeks they've been talked out of their faith. How much of that is laid at the feet of us leaders? I'm speaking to myself now in terms of how we equip the people of God. Well, God says a, be a very beautiful thing. I've loved you. And they say, well, how have you loved us? Verse two. And God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. Now, he goes back to the story of Jacob and Esau. And Jacob and Esau were twins in their mama's womb. But the younger was chosen over the older. And God uses this idea of his choice of Jacob to show his love, his special love for Israel. Now, I want to show you something from the book of Genesis. Let's go to chapter 23 in Genesis, chapter 23. That's the first book of the Bible. Let's go over there. I want to show you what was happening. And uh, I am aware that when you see something like, Jacob, I have loved, and then we're going to see in the next verse, Esau I have hated, we're going to ask the question, what is actually going on in terms of this situation? Genesis 25, actually, is what you want. And so Genesis 25 lays out this narrative. And let me just say that the actual Jacob and Esau, remember the date of the book of Malachi is around 400 B.C. Jacob and Esau, as individual persons, lived way thousand plus years before the book of Malachi was written. So the book of Malachi is not addressing the Jacob and the Esau. The book of Malachi, this is very important for you to understand in terms of wrestling with this passage, is Jacob represents the nation of Israel and Esau represents the nation of Edom. The heads of the nation represent the nation. God is not in Malachi, a thousand plus years after these guys have died, addressing these individuals. He's not saying, I really love Jacob and I really hated Esau. He's talking about two nations. Take a look at Genesis 25. Uh, let's pick it up. 25, let's go to 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. 
And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Don't know if it was a prophet that shared this with her. But the Lord, perhaps through a prophet, said to her, Two what? Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And then we'll have, and we won't read on for here for this purpose, but we have the birth of Jacob and Esau. And Esau is born first, Jacob is born second. Typically, the firstborn had all the privilege, had all the, the rights and honor, but God flips it upside down and he chooses Jacob over Esau, but more specifically chooses Israel over Edom because Israel is who? God's chosen people. And so what begins to emerge from this idea of God's choosing of Israel is the idea of election. God elected Israel. And this is where some of the controversy begins to come to the surface because people have questions about election and predestination and on what basis does God choose anyone? Well, we read a Deuteronomy passage that says very clearly that Israel was not chosen by God because they were more numerous than other people. God simply decided to love Israel and choose Israel. Now, let me ask you a question. Why did God choose any nation to begin with? What was he trying to do? Israel becomes what? A channel through which the Messiah comes into the world. So God, if I can put it this way, had to choose one nation. By the way, by choosing one nation, that means all other nations he did not choose. However other many nations were on the planet at that time, none of those other nations were chosen. Nor, if you look at the individual family and even these twins, only one of the two twins from the same mama and daddy were chosen. Why? Because God chose a man, and which will eventually become the nation of Israel. Jacob will be renamed Israel. He'll have 12 sons. Those 12 sons will become the 12 tribes. And through one of those tribes comes the Messiah, the tribe of Judah, which makes it now even narrower and more exclusive. And by choosing Jacob, God was not doing that to the exclusion of other nations. Like, I just love him only, and all of you are out to lunch, and, and you're all you know, under my curse. That's not what God is doing. In fact, you'd have to argue that by choosing Israel, God is making the way so that the seed can be born, Messiah, and that the light of salvation can come to all the nations. So this is the reason for the choice of Israel to begin with. God had to choose, if I can put it that way, and he chose a nation at the exclusion of all other nations, including most of the ones that are represented here tonight. Amen? God chose Jacob. And he also said in Isaiah 49, I chose you to be a light to the nations. So this is what God did. This is his election of Israel to be the vehicle to bring forth the Messiah. And so the, the children struggle in the womb. 
and they are two nations. That's the clarification. I want you to turn over to Genesis 29 because we've come across the verse, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. What does this mean? Genesis 29. Look at verse 30. So Jacob went into Rachel. Now Jacob is a man. He's married. And indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah. I hope you know that story about Uncle Laban and how he snuck Leah uh, into the tent and all of that. And he served with Laban for another seven years. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. If you have an ESV, it's that Leah was hated. And he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. If you look at the Hebrew word, it's sane for unloved. And it literally means to be hated. So notice, read the verses again. So Jacob went into Rachel, he, that was his wife, and he had another wife who was Leah, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. Then the following verse says that Leah was hated. And here's what I'm going to lay out to you, that hate in a contrasting love-hate uh, context is a Hebraism. It's a Hebrew idiom to basically say to love less or to be unchosen. It does not mean, these verses do not mean that God really, really loved Jacob and he really, really hated Esau. This is just a further way to say Jacob was chosen above Esau. And so this is a Hebrew idiom and you can, you can bear this out in a lot of places. Let me just give them to you in rapid fire. Jesus, Matthew 6, 24, says, No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one, God bless you, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, if you had two, uh, to use an illustration I heard from somebody else, let's say you had two jobs. You have a, a job during the day and a job at night, and I feel for you if you do. Let's say that you love one job more than the other. It's more, you know, uh, your cup of tea. It's more what you think that you're called to do. But the other job that you do to make extra money. You might say, I really love job A, and job B is... But even if you love job A more than job B, you probably don't hate job B. You probably don't, you know, punch in the time clock and go, I hate it. I hate being here. Right? But it's a comparative thing. Listen to this. If anyone comes to me, Luke 14, 26, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, in the scriptures, we are told by the Lord to honor our father and mother to love our wife as Christ loved the church, to care for and love our children, and to love even our enemies. Why would the Lord then say that we have to hate everybody around us to be his disciple? Because he is using the Hebrew idiom of a contrasting love-hate, where it simply means that your love for one thing should be so profound that it makes this other thing seem like hate, but it's actually just that you are less committed to it. And in this case... It has to do with the lordship of God in your life as compared to any other thing in your life. He must be first. You must love him with everything that you are. Amen? So this is how 
We are under, to understand Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Esau was just not chosen by God. Here's another thing that you need to know. There is absolutely no record in Genesis that Esau ever served Jacob. Where it says that the older will serve the younger, there's no record of that. In fact, there's a scene in Genesis, I think it's 33, where uh, Jacob is afraid of Esau and Esau comes with 400 men. And Jacob bows before Esau seven times, essentially to say, brother, don't hurt me. I've got this family. And Esau ends up falling on Jacob's neck and they kiss and they cry. And basically it's a whole forgiveness scene. And so here's the deal. Esau never served Jacob because the Malachi text is not about the individual man Jacob or the individual man Esau. It's about two nations, Israel and Edom. Everybody with me? Now, I want you with that in mind to go to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Now, in Romans chapter 9, we have uh, probably one of the chapters that most would point to in terms of this idea of election, and our Calvinist friends would point us here. And, and here's what I, what I would say that you have to take Romans 9, 10, and 11 together. And the question that Paul is answering is this. And for some of you, this may be new territory. For others of you, you may be wrestling with this. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are attempting to answer the question, what happened to Israel? If Israel is God's elect people, how could it be that the bulk of the nation doesn't Follow Christ, and they're not in covenant in the new covenant. What has happened? And so in Romans 9, take a look, Paul picks this up. It's not as though Romans 9, 6, the word of God has failed, right after talking about the promises uh, to Israel and all that they are blessed with. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. That is, everyone who's ethnic Israel is not the true Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac, your descendants will be called or named. Now notice how we're going down through Abraham, Isaac, and now we'll get to Jacob in a moment. That is, not the children of the flesh who are children of God. It's not about your ethnic lines or pedigree, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and here's Sarah now. Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca. We just read these accounts also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born, so they're in the womb, they had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her what would happen. The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now, verse 13 is a quote from Malachi 1-2. And the other passage uh, right up above where it talks about the older will serve the younger, uh, that's verse 12, is Genesis 25-23. So you have a quote from the actual lives or the birth narrative and then the book of Malachi. Let me just say that if you look at Romans 9 in terms of salvation election, I think that you've missed Paul's point. 
I do not think that Paul is talking about God chooses one and doesn't choose another. You're in, you're out. Something that's called in Calvinistic circles, double predestination. Pastor Michael, what does that mean? Here's what it means. That some are predestined to heaven and others are predestined to hell and God just does all the choosing by his sovereign choice. You're in, you're out. You're in, you're out. Romans chapter nine, I don't think is about salvation or individual salvation. I believe it's about corporate calling or nations. The question that Paul is attempting to answer is what happened to Israel? How could the chosen line through which the Messiah would come, the law, the covenants, etc., what happened to them? And the word of God has not failed. Paul's simply saying this, there's a remnant, and that remnant of Israel is Jewish believers, but it doesn't matter what your birth line is, whether you are a son of Abraham from these very rocks. God can bring up children of Abraham, John the Baptist said to the religious leadership, from these stones he can raise up children of Abraham. It's not your lineage, it's whether or not you're in the faith and have trusted in Jesus Christ. Amen? But the question in Romans 9, this is my view, you can wrestle with it, is it's not about predestination to individual salvation or election. It's about nations. It's about the nation of Israel and specifically here the nation of Edom. Everybody with me? And when Pharaoh comes up in the chapter and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, I think that a way you can see this is that Pharaoh represents the head of another nation, the nation of Egypt. And that Paul is not talking about one going to heaven and one not going to heaven. Think about it. Do we know where Esau is today? I don't think we do. Some people would argue that Esau is not with the Lord, but how do we know that? Well, Esau did some dumb things, like he sold his birthright and all of that. But did Jacob do some dumb things too? I would say so. We don't know the eternal destiny of Esau. And we know that there, are, there were Edomites that believed in the Lord and trusted in the Lord. Here, here's what I'm saying. That, that Romans 9 is not about God loved Jacob and Jacob's in heaven and he, Esau's in hell. That's not the context. The context is the nation of Israel, the nation of Edom, and then a little bit further down, the nation of Egypt. Everybody with me? And the bigger picture is corporate call through which the Messiah will be realized and come into the world, not individual salvation. I think if you understand Romans 9 that way, and I think it fits exactly with what we've got in Malachi, you are seeing what's going on. Remember the quote is from Malachi, and it's way after these guys lived. All right, so back to Malachi. That might be more than you ever wanted to hear about those uh, particular debates. <laughs> But there it is. All right, back to Malachi, and we'll finish it up for tonight. So Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. I think you can fill in the blanks and you can see what the Lord is saying there. Now let's go back to the positive. Jacob have I loved. Does God love you? Yes, he does. Has he loved you with an everlasting love? Yes, he has. 
Has he called you to himself in Christ? Yes. So maybe you have your own questions. Maybe you would find yourself in that category tonight where you're asking similar questions and God would say, no, I love you and I will always love you. And so here's what happens now to Esau. I've made his mountains, Malachi 1.3. So um, his mountains represent where the Edomites ended up living and they became a desolation when Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar came, he, dest he destroyed everything. And I've appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, verse 4, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build up, but I will tear down. Men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Now, God continues to contrast the people of Edom and if you want a, a fuller treatment on what happened with the people of Edom, read Obadiah, which some of you are saying, Oba who? <laughs> well, it's one of these little books at the end. It's one of the minor prophets. They're called minor, not because they're playing in the minor leagues, by the way. They're just shorter books, that's all. And I'm pretty sure Obadiah is only one chapter. And you can read the chapter about everything that happened to Edom. And God judged Edom. And Edom said, we will rebuild. And God said, no, you're not. You're done. But by contrast, what happened to Israel? In the books of Nehemiah and Ezra, they rebuilt again because God gave them grace and the Messiah was still yet to come. He continues to contrast his love for his people with something that happened to a neighboring nation, namely Edom. And he says, this is the final verse, and your eyes will see and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Skip down to verse 11 of Malachi 1. It says, For from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is uh, pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. In the last thought here for you tonight, is that because God is faithful to the promises of, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Messiah does come, and the Lord's name is glorified beyond the borders of Israel. In fact, you live in America tonight, and the gospel hit our shores because the Lord preserved a little nation, rescued it from Egyptian bondage, guided it throughout time. And if you read the Old Testament... The many of the stories in, about Israel could make the Jerry Springer show and maybe make even some of them blush. Some crazy stuff within this family. You're like, who's sleeping with who and who's married to who and, and what's going on over here and that brother did what to her and who and when? And you're like, this is God's holy people? And you're like, because God chose the nation not because they were better or more numerous but because he had a plan to bring the seed, singular, into the world so that you could be sitting in America tonight and come to know the Jewish Messiah. Amen? That's why he chose Jacob. That's why Jesus Christ came onto the scene. And that's why salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
Lord, beyond our borders, that's something I'm thinking about as we close this message, that the message went beyond the borders of Israel because that was your heart all along. In choosing this little nation, which became a big nation, you said to Abraham, in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Later in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, 18, because you've obeyed my voice, in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And that happened because you chose Jacob, you chose Israel to bring forth our Savior. And they had to return to the land. It had to happen so that in Bethlehem, the bread of life would be born in a place called Beit Lechem, the house of bread, the bread of life would come. You were working on so many levels to bring forth your plan and your purpose. And what's amazing is when we think about you choosing us as your people, we can revel in the fact that you did choose us and you did draw us. And that's a whole mystery in why and, and all of that, Lord. But here's what we know. We are God's chosen people, chosen as his own possession to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Would you just take a moment, if you've not uh, received Christ as your Savior, if you've felt him nudging and calling and drawing, you know, no one can come unless the Father draws him. But I believe that you have a real decision to make tonight. And as God draws you by the gospel and by his spirit, he's not going to repent for you. He wants you to believe and trust in Jesus. Turn from your sin. Turn from any idols in your life and trust in him. And he'll give you new life. And he'll set you on a new path. And he will reveal his love to you. And it will be Christ in you, the hope of glory. For those of you who do know the Lord, may you be blessed and encouraged in his ongoing love and faithfulness toward you in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we know that your love is going to lead us all the way home. So would you encourage the saints tonight? Fill them up afresh with that hope. In Jesus' name.